Uh, it indeed is a privilege and honor to be able to stand before you and to share from God's word. I'm grateful for your elders to the opportunity. And uh, at Bangalore Bible Church, uh, we do consider CBF as a partner in the gospel in the city. Uh, we pray for you regularly uh, in our morning worship service. And we're thankful for this faithful outpost of the gospel that is also uh, committed to expository preaching. As I'm sure many of you know, or maybe you don't know, there are not many churches in Bangalore uh, that are f- so clear on the gospel and faithful to uh, preaching uh, the word of God expositorily. And uh, we believe that any church uh, that holds to those two things is a dear uh, church and somebody that we can partner with. And so we're grateful for you. And we often hear about what the Lord is doing uh, through you guys. And we rejoice at how the Lord is working uh, through CBF uh, There cannot be enough faithful churches in Bangalore. Amen? Uh, In 1857, a Canadian doctor who studied medicine in London uh, convinced his wife to move to Aramongo, a tiny island 1,900 kilometers northeast of Brisbane, Australia. An island known for killing missionaries. We know Mr. Gordon could not have had Indian parents because who leaves Canada, right? We're all trying to get to Canada. And who would waste a medical degree on missions to an island country that nobody's heard of? Uh, But Gordon went. He learned the language. He shared his medical skills. He established a, a good reputation for the religion that he brought as being beneficial to the people. He gave most of his time, though, not to practicing medicine, but to translating the Bible in the language of the people. He believed that this was the longest lasting service he could give them, to give them the word of God, which has the word of eternal life. Note that he prioritized Bible translation over medical care. Gordon was repeatedly threatened and told to leave the island, but he resolved, I am not going to go. I'm going to stay. And just four years later, in 1861, some sandalwood traders arrived and they wanted control of the island and this precious natural resource. So they intentionally brought two people with measles and exposed them to as many of the Ermongo people as possible to try and wipe them out. Gordon took it upon himself to care for the infected Ermongans. I think that's how you say it. And under his care, all but two people survived. But the two people that didn't make it were the children of one of the tribe's chiefs. You can imagine his response. He gathered his men and he went on to take the life of Gordon and his wife, thinking that they had cursed his children. Four years after the arrival of the Gordons, they were murdered, martyred, their lives given for the cause of the gospel. Now, Gordon's brother, James, was a student studying for ministry, and he was out plowing in the fields when he heard the news. He immediately dropped his plow and sent an application to the mission board, asking, can I replace my brother on the field? And he went, he preached the gospel, a message of forgiveness to his brother's murderers. I want you to think about that. When missionaries like the, the Gordon brothers decide to take the gospel to the unreached people, What are they really trying to do? We often think of missions as just merely evangelism. But is that the end goal of missions? 
Right? If Paul is our model in the book of Acts, does he just go to these cities and share the gospel and leave? What does he do? He shares the gospel and then he gathers whatever believers are there into what? Local churches. And he establishes them. He appoints elders over them. And he gives his life to strengthening these churches. Right? The end goal of missions is church planting. That's ultimately what the Gordons were trying to do. That's what Paul did. And that's what today we try and do. And we take the gospel to new places, right? Not just to have believers, but to have a church, something that is lasting, that will hold on to the gospel for generation after generation. But if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you might be wondering, is the local church really worth it? Right? How many of you have been hurt or disappointed by the church? How many of you have been hurt by the relationships within the church? Right? Relationships are difficult. They're messy. And the church isn't just full of hypocrites and self-righteous, self-important people. Why bother? Do we even need the church anymore? Right? You can hear the best sermons online. Uh, you have access to great articles and books very easily today. You can be connected to like-minded believers on Facebook groups and WhatsApp chats and Zoom meetings. And there's all these great parachurch ministries, BSF, CBF, a seminary. Why bother with the church? And maybe, all right, church is necessary. We go on Sunday morning. We check it off our list. But do we really need to go all the time? My daughter, every Sunday, she asks, do we have to go back to church at night? Why do we have night church? Why do we have to go on Wednesday? Right? And that's how many of us view church, right? It's just something we do on Sunday. Let's get our responsibility over. But Sunday school, morning worship, evening worship, Bible studies, small groups, discipling, do we really have to do all of that? Why can't I just come on Sunday morning, uh, hear a sermon, worship, and go home? Right? Isn't it all just too much? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And my hope this morning is that we're going to see from the Word of God that the church indeed is really worth it. And here's the main point of this morning's text. God calls us to suffer for the sake of His church because His eternal purpose is accomplished through the church. Right? God calls us to suffer for the sake of his church, because his eternal purpose is accomplished through the church. I'm going to have to empty my pockets. Sorry. Normally there's a little, oh, there is a shelf right here, but I can't preach with anything in my pockets. I don't know why. Bad habit. Okay, let's continue. Let's get to the text, right? Uh, in verses 3 through, chapter 3, 1 through 6, I'm going to break it into two points, this section. First thing we're going to see is God calls us to suffer for the sake of his church. Right? God calls us to suffer for the sake of his church. Right? And so, book of Ephesians, chapter 2, at the end, Paul ends with this. Right? He talks about how Jew and Gentile are together being built up into the dwelling place of God. And in light of this, Paul is about to start a prayer. Right? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's He's going to pray, but he interrupts his prayer. And he'll come back to his prayer in verse 14. He interrupts his prayer uh, because he realizes that many of the believers may not know about his ministry. 
Right, so Paul planted the church in Ephesus, uh, but it's been some time since he's been there with them. And so many new believers have come into the church, and many of these new believers are Gentiles, and uh, they may not remember him. Right? Uh, if you've been away from your church for any period of time, you come back after a couple years, what happens? Right? It's all new faces. Uh, two years ago during uh, covid we got stuck in America, and my home church called me and said, come, uh, you know, stay with us for as long as you need to. Uh, I hadn't lived in that town in nine years. I didn't know more than half the church, right? Because uh, churches keep changing. Uh, and so uh, many of them didn't know about him and his ministry, and so he wants to explain his ministry. And as he does, we get some wonderful truths about God's purpose for the church. First thing we see in verses 1 and 2, is Paul was commissioned by God to reveal the mystery of Christ. Read verse 1, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Notice what Paul says, I was made a steward of God's grace. Paul didn't earn his ministry. He wasn't working his way up to apostleship, right? I'm going to start as maybe a church member, and then if I'm really faithful, they'll give me some more responsibility, and then maybe I can earn my position into deacon, and then I can you know, be an elder, and hey, if I'm really good at an elder, then I can be an apostle, right? That's not how it works. He was given as a gift of grace the position of being an apostle. He wasn't a ministry professional. What was Paul doing prior to his apostleship? Do you know? He was a persecutor of the church, right? What was his qualification? What was his resume? I was persecuting the church, and so now I'm an apostle? How can that happen? Only by the grace of God. What qualified Paul for his ministry position? God's calling upon him. And notice how he puts it, I'm a steward of God's grace. Grace is not something that is meant to be kept, right? God gives us grace so we can give it to others. What does a steward do? He manages what has been given to them. And we often ask for God's grace, but how often do we ask God to give us grace to give to other people? Have we even considered the possibility that God has been gracious in our lives, not just for ourselves, but so that we can then pass on that grace in serving others? And what was the grace that Paul was given to be an apostle to the Gentiles? He was given the responsibility to God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, that's why I'm in prison. Now, you may not, or none of us are apostles, But do you realize that you have also been commissioned into God's service? There are some aspects of Paul's calling that was very unique. Uh, None of us, I don't think, have had the resurrected Jesus appear in front of us. But all believers are called into God's service. And this is very clear teaching of Scripture all the way back in Genesis. When Abraham is chosen in chapter 12, verse 3, he's given this wonderful promise at the end of that promise, it says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? 
Israel, Exodus 19.5, before Moses gives him the law, he calls him, he recounts how uh, the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And he says, you're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation, a nation set apart for serving whom? The Lord. And if you're a kingdom of priests, right, who are they priests for? The nations. They're to mediate God's commands to the nations around them, to mediate the worship of the nations back to God. Great commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. We read a little later in chapter 4, verse 12. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? Apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers are to do what? Equip the saints. Who are the saints? All believers in Jesus Christ, right? Election, God's choosing for salvation is always for the purpose of serving. It's not just, hey, God saved me so he could bless me abundantly and I can live a good life. Right? God chooses you and I for salvation so that we may serve him, how? By making disciples. Right? And what does it mean to make disciples? There's two parts, evangelism and training. If somebody doesn't know the Lord as Savior, how do we make them a disciple? We have to share the gospel with them. Right? That's evangelism. Who's called to do that task? Not just the elders, not just uh, people in full-time ministry. It's given to every believer. Equally important is training them, right? To teach them to obey everything which I've commanded you. And so the task is never just share the gospel and leave. It's share the gospel and teach them everything that you know about what it means to follow Christ. And if you keep reading in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16, you'll see that this isn't just meant to be done alone, but it's meant to be done through the church, right? Discipleship is not an individual project. It's not just me and my walk with God. It's a group project. We're to do it together, building one another up, speaking truth to one another. Right? Paul says in verse 5, right, this mystery that has been made known to him was hidden in the past, right? And so Paul, he didn't make up the gospel. He didn't make up all the things that he's saying. I mean, just think about how strange that would be. A guy who's given his life to persecuting Christians, who was a hated Gentiles, then decides one day that, you know, what a good idea would be to make up this thing called the church and to put the Jews and the Gentiles whom I hate in one body. Right? That's not how people naturally think, is it? The gospel is not a man-made thing. It's not even logically conceivable. And so the, the word mystery in Scripture is not like how we use mystery today. Today we read a good mystery novel, or we, you know, we don't read, right? We watch mystery movies to try and figure out who did it. Uh, mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, and then God reveals it to us. So there's nothing that we need to figure out. It's been revealed to us, right? How does Paul know this? Because it was revealed to him, right? So in the Old Testament, there's all these promises of the Messiah going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. But the fact that the Messiah would be God's very own son was hidden, right? We love the Old Testament, in my church, I'm preaching through Genesis right now. But praise God, 
for the New Testament. Right? Look at what he says. Come back to verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Do you recognize how privileged we are as the people of God to live right now on this side of the cross? We have more revelation than all of the Old Testament saints, right? We often think, oh, it'd be great to be around when Moses was there doing all of these miracles. But they just had a shadow of Christ, right? How much better is it for us now to fully understand and know God's plan and to know our Savior, Jesus Christ? Paul says all these things were hidden, but we have the privilege of knowing it now. Praise God. And God didn't just reveal this mystery to Paul, but to all of the holy apostles and prophets. It's through the apostles and prophets that we have the New Testament. We believe that all scripture has been inspired by God. Right? The doctrine of inspiration is that the Holy Spirit works through human authors and their personalities to communicate to us the very word of God without error. That's why when we hold this book up, what do we call it? The word of God, God speaking to us. And the only way that we understand the gospel and the scriptures is not by our degrees and how smart we are and how good we are at grammar and all of those things. Those are helpful tools, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the truth of God's word, right? You take the smartest unbeliever, do they really understand the truths of the gospel when they read the Bible, right? No. And so how is it that we know it? Because the Spirit has illuminated us, illuminated us, enabled us to understand the truth of the Bible. Do you understand that? God has revealed himself and his plan to you through his word. That means we ought to make every effort to know the scriptures. At a personal level, do you give yourself to reading the scriptures that you may know our God and know his plan? Do you meditate on them? Do you memorize the word of God that you may hunger more of our Savior? to know and understand more of his plan? Do you attend your church's Bible studies to learn together with the corporate body of Christ more about your Savior and his plan? Do you meet with other believers one-on-one for the purpose of encouraging them spiritually and studying together the word of God and his plan and maybe relate more how specifically how that plan is to be worked out in your own life? Do you read good Christian books that will help you understand our God more and his plan for you more, right? As those who understand that God has revealed to us himself through his word, we ought to make every effort to understand and know his word as well as we can, right? What greater thing is there than to know our God and to know his plan, to know his purpose, And so what is the specific mystery that was revealed to Paul in chapter 3 that he brings about? Look at verse 6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is something completely new. 
In the Old Testament, there are hints and there's prophecies about how the nations would become a part of God's people. But if a Gentile in the Old Testament wanted to become a part of God's people, what did they have to do? They had to get circumcised. They had to become Jewish in culture. They had to join Israel. Right? If you go back to chapter 2, look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles were alienated from Israel, and as a result, they were alienated from the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God. But now in Christ, those things have all changed. Right? In this dispensation, we Gentiles are no longer strangers. We belong to the people of God in Christ. And in verse 6, Paul uses, he makes up essentially three Greek words that have the word with in it. And this is the third time he's done it in Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, he said, we're made alive together with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. Those are all one word he made up with the word with. In chapter 2, verse 19, 21, and 22, he says, we're fellow citizens. We're joined together. We're built up together. Right In Greek, those all have with, with, with. And here he says, we're co-heirs, same body, sharing together. With, with, with. Right? It's Together, Gentiles, Jews are united in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, in the church, we're made one. Not in Abraham, not in Israel, not in Jerusalem. And this is only true of believers, right? It's not talking about everybody that lives on the earth. We're one in Christ. You have to be in Christ to be one in Christ. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we are put into the body of Christ. Right? Our unity, therefore, is in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, it's quite possible as you look around this room that the only thing you have in, po- in common with somebody else is that you both are followers of Jesus. You're not going to have the same opinion on everything. Right? It's not music that brings us together. It's not clothing that brings us together. It's not whether you want to wear a mask or you shouldn't wear a mask or what the government says about whether they should make us wear masks. It's not whether homeschooling is better or a Christian school or a private school or international school. It's not, hey, this guy's my favorite preacher. That guy's the better Bible teacher. What is it that brings us together? It's Jesus Christ. And being one in Christ doesn't mean that we're all uniform. It means that we're united together in Christ. We don't all look the same, right? But at the end of the day, we love one another and we're striving together for the work of the gospel because we are in Christ. And it's for this message, right, that Jew and Gentile together make up the body of Christ that Paul was in prison. If you follow the storyline of Acts, Peter's the first one to take the gospel to a Gentile in Cornelius. And immediately he gets back and what do they say? Why were you eating with a Gentile? In Acts chapter 15, 16 years after the day of Pentecost, after the church begins, right, a council is held to decide if Gentiles need to become part of the Jewish people 
to be a part of the church? Right? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the law? Acts chapter 21, right? Paul is preaching the gospel and Jews have heard that Paul is saying that in Jesus, Gentiles don't need to follow the law. They get mad and what do they do? They come and persecute him. Right? In Acts chapter 22, Paul is making a defense of his ministry and he, they're all okay until he says, I was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then they want to kill him. Right? Why is Paul suffering in prison? Because he's preaching the message of the church. That in Christ, we're not only reconciled to our God, but we're reconciled to one another. Right? He's given his life to the church, and as a result, he's suffering for it. And this is nothing new to Paul. Right? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, what does he write? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Jesus, in Matthew 16, tells the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what should a man give in return for his soul? I don't know about you, but losing my life is equivalent to suffering. Right? To give your life for something means to embrace suffering. Think of how a mother gives her life to her children. What does that look like? Staying up all night when the child is sick, right? losing sleep. Anytime something happens to the kid, she's worrying, she's upset, she's anxious. right? Because her life has been given for her child. When we give our life for something, that means that we're willing to endure all hardship for the sake of that thing. And what is it that Paul has given his life to? It's not just the gospel, but it's to the church, right? Think about how easy it would be if Paul said, okay, Gentiles, you have your own church. Jews, you have your own church. Maybe everybody will be happy. There won't be any fighting. Everything will be peaceful, right? That's been tried in India, has it not? You high caste people, you come to this church. This language, you come to that church. Middle class people come here. Right? There's a whole movement that says, hey, let's get the most common denominator that people have and build churches around that. Right? But does that really show off the gospel? Right? What is, is that even the gospel? You can't uh, dissect the gospel and say, all right, well, this part is true and that part we don't need. Right? The gospel is that in Christ, Jew and Gentile, two groups that hated each other for centuries are what? One. Can you separate that? Can you take that out and say, well, I don't really think that part we need to follow. Right? Be prepared to suffer for preaching and teaching equality and reconciliation. Right? There are no shortcuts. If you're going to give your life to the gospel and to the church. You can't avoid suffering. The moment, right, if we go outside and we start telling the world that in Christ we are one, will they not hate us? Right? Has not our country been built on segregation? What is the caste system? It's saying, well, these guys are superior and these guys are inferior. Let's keep it that way, right? 
And we have many ways, not just the caste system, in our society to make sure that the people on top stay on top and the people on bottom stay on bottom. Why are Christians hated so much? Right? Because we say, no, that's not how it is. In the image of God, we are equal. In Christ, we are all one. If the church is faithful to its mission to evangelize and make disciples, we will suffer. Right? If you take the most rotten sinner out there and you bring him into your church, what are other churches going to say? Right? What will people in your own church say? Do you know that guy's reputation? Do you know what he's like? What would you say if Paul joined your church? Hey, do you know last week he was out there trying to murder my brother in Damascus? And you want that guy in our church? Right? But what is the gospel? That in Christ we have been forgiven and we are reconciled to God and not only God, but to whom? To each other. If we preach this and we're faithful to it, the world and even other so-called Christians will look down upon us. We are called to suffer for the sake of the church. But why is it worth it? In verses 7 through 13, we see it's worth it because God's eternal purpose is accomplished through the church. Why does Paul endure suffering? All of this for the church? People who probably gossiped about him when he was gone, who say, hey, does Paul really love us? Why is he not visiting us? Or Paul like that guy or that guy, right? Aren't the church people just going to disappoint you? Think about the Corinthians. Aren't they driving him crazy? Can the church really, you know, is it just too ideal? You know, God has set these things up, but people are messy. Can it really work in the way that God intended to? Well, Paul is committed to the church because God is committed to the church. Verses 7 through 9, Paul understands that ministry, again, is a gift from God. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Serving God is an incredible privilege. The fact that God wants anything to do with you or me is astonishing. But he not only wants something to do with us, he has called us into his service. Imagine if you were a soldier for the Indian army. You say, you know what, I don't think India is going to win. I'm going to join Pakistan. right? And so you say, hey, Pakistan, I'm here. Let's do this. I know all this good intel on India. And then after some time, you you say, hey, you know, I I think I want to go back home. Is there any chance the Indian army would say, yeah, come back. In fact, we're going to make you a, I don't know what the highest rank in an Indian army is, but, you know, general, sergeant. Would they ever let the man back? Not a chance. But we were God's enemies, right? We rebelled against him. We wanted to be king instead of him. But when we humbly come before him and acknowledge our sins and repent and put our faith in Christ, He not only forgives us, but he calls us into his service. That's why Paul says, to me, the least of all the sinners, a guy who yesterday was persecuting Christians, has been called to serve God. God loves to take the most unsuspecting people and use them for his kingdom. A staunch 
Jewish persecutor of the church, gives his life to establishing the church among Gentiles. Is there anything more ironic than that? Can you imagine what Paul's friends and families would have been thinking? Hey, yesterday you were trying to kill the church, and today you're trying to plant the church amongst Gentiles? Someone says, hey, I'm never going to go to that place. Goes to that place to plant a church. Brothers and sisters, you are not here by accident. God has placed you here to serve him in this local church. And just maybe he's preparing you to go places you'd never imagine for the sake of his church. Verse 9. Sorry, the end of verse 8, you see what Paul says. The grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is the purpose of ministry? What is the task that is set before us? To make known the unreachable, unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the goal. That's the end game. That's what we all have been called to do. That's the privilege that we have. Right? Point people to Jesus. Say, do you know how amazing Jesus is? That's most easily seen in the ministry from the front. Guys leading songs, praying, preaching. All of that is to what? Point us to Christ. But it's equally true of less visible ministry. The guy running the sound, somebody came and set up all these chairs. But the end is not just to have a perfectly arranged hall, right? Or amazingly clear sound. The end of that is to help people see Jesus. But it's also true when you help meet the needs of your fellow church members. right? You're getting an opportunity to show them the unsearchable riches of Christ. When somebody comes to your table and asks for help, you're not just there to give them your wisdom. What are you there to give them? To point them to the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is how the gospel ministers to you. This is how Christ can help you. It's true of all of ministry. Do not forget that the goal of ministry is always pointing people to the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is the end. Which also means you should pray especially for whoever stands in front of this pulpit. Pray for your elders that when they preach, God would enable them to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Does that sound like an easy task? Right? To come before you week in and week out, whoever's preaching, and say, this is what Christ has done for you. The unsearchable riches, that's, that's impossible by human strength and wisdom. Pray for your church service and all of the ministry that your church does, that the members would grow in their love for Christ as they're exposed to his unsearchable riches. Right? The goal is not just to gain some knowledge about Jesus and say, hey, I, I know a little bit more. As you learn more about Christ, as you understand who he is and what he's done, your heart should burn in love for him. And as your heart burns for Christ, you should be naturally more encouraged and emboldened 
to do the work of ministry. Verses 10 through 11, we see more clearly what this mystery is. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul was given the task to bring the light, bring to light the mystery of to everyone. Understand this: there's no secret knowledge in Christianity. There's no, you know, like your elders are not holding out secret truth and say, "Hey, let's wait for them to mature a little bit, and then we'll give them the real good stuff." That's not how Christianity works. Think about the Great Commission. Jesus says, "Make disciples, teaching them to observe." everything I have commanded you. Paul tells Timothy that what he has learned, he's into trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You are not meant to be just a learner or consumer. You don't come to church as saying, hey, what can I learn? Here's my great notes. What can I get out of this? You learn why. So that you can teach others. And so my challenge to every one of you Right? If you are here and you're a believer and you understand the gospel, who are you teaching? Who are you building up? Who are you investing in? Are you taking the unsearchable riches of Christ and what you've understood and passing it on to somebody else? If not, why? How are you being faithful to the commission that you have been given? Right? If you know the gospel, and if you're a believer, I hope you know the gospel, you at least know something more than unbelievers. You have the ability to go and pass that on to them. Every one of us ought to be taking whatever we learned and passing it on. Here's a real simple way to do that. When you go to lunch, right, assuming that you've learned something this morning, right, say, hey, this is what encouraged me from the Word of God. This is something that really stood out to me. I'm going to try and apply this this week. How are you going to apply it? As you read the Bible, do you just keep it to yourself or do you come out, do you share it with your family and your friends and say, hey, this truth really encouraged me from the word of God. It's really speaking to me. I, I wanted to encourage you with it. Or, I learned this from this book or this podcast, right? We're not just meant to learn and keep it to ourselves. Whatever you're learning, make it a practice to share it with someone, to encourage them. The word of God is meant to echo, to reverberate through the body of Christ, Right? Paul again states that the mystery of the church was hidden in the past, hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul is saying the church is not plan B. It's not an accident. Sometimes people think, well, Israel rejected Jesus and so God decided to come up with the church and, you know, it's just a little blip in his plan, but eventually he'll get back to Israel. From eternity past, the church has been a part of God's plan. You see what he said in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Paul doesn't give up on the church. He knows that it's God's sovereign will to accomplish his plan through the church. Right? God has planned from eternity past to make known to the heavenly rulers and authorities his manifold wisdom. How? Through the church. Think about this. The earth is like a cosmic theater. 
And God is showing off his glory and wisdom to all the spiritual forces. Notice, the primary audience is not the people on earth. Who is it? Go back to verse 10. Being made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. And so as the cosmic forces, those who are opposed to God, look down upon the earth and see that in Christ, we've not only been reconciled to God, but that we've been reconciled to each other, it shows off God's wisdom. I want you to go back to Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 10. For context, we'll look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. What is God's plan? To unite all things in who? In Christ. What is the first fruits of God's plan? It's the church, right? As rebellious, fallen, divided, evil, selfish men are made one in the body of Christ. These heavenly forces look down and say, how can it be? It's evidence to them that God's plan will unfold. If sinful fallen men, Jews and Gentiles who hated each other can be one in the church in Christ, it's a sign that Ephesians 1.10 will come to happen. And all of this, how can it come to be? Only in Christ. Right? I don't know what kind of background you're from, but imagine you're a Christian in Ephesus. You most likely would have been worshiping pagans. Right? You, were, you were a pagan, you were worshiping idols. Right? And perhaps in the back of your mind, there's always this doubt, how do I know that Jesus will win? Maybe these idols were more powerful. Right? Maybe I should go back to them. And we live in a city that's not too much different than Ephesus. There's idols all around. And perhaps you're from a background that used to worship idols. And maybe you're wondering, is, is God really going to win? Or is he going to overcome other deities out there? And what is Paul said, yes, God is going to win. The whole book of Ephesians says, yes, nothing is going to take down God's plan. In fact, in Christ, we already have the first fruits. This is the already not yet tension we see in Scripture. In the cross, in Jesus' death and resurrection, God's eternal plan has been realized. Christ has won victory. But yet, in this sinful fallen world, Right? Christ's rule has not come fully into this world. But one day it will. Right? The resurrection is the proof that one day Christ will return and his rule will be established on this earth. And so Paul is confident in this fact and therefore he's willing to suffer for the church. Right? If you know that you're going to win, you'll be willing to suffer, right? How does a good general or a good captain get his team or his soldiers to do all the hard work of training? By convincing them that we're going to get victory. If you want victory, you have to go through the hardship and suffering. Right? Imagine what kind of captain would be like, well, I don't know if we're going to win, uh, but uh, we've got to run six miles today. Like if you don't know if you're going to win, are you going to want to run six miles? The other team's a lot better than us. 
uh, I don't know, maybe we should just take the day off, right? But God is not giving us false hope. We know that victory is at hand. We know that Christ has won the battle. And therefore, Paul and we, likewise, ought to be willing to suffer for that which we know is going to come to pass. Right? If we understand that we're going to be rewarded eternally, we should be willing to suffer temporally. Not only are we sure that God's plan is and will be realized, but we have access to the Creator right now. Look at verses 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over which I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I understand if we have this great task of making the unsearchable riches of Christ known, if we're called to suffer on behalf of the church, this is of tremendous consolation to us. In this task, we are not alone. We have the confidence and boldness to approach Jesus Christ. I mean, not Jesus Christ. Approach God the Father through Jesus Christ. When you come to God in prayer, what is the basis of your confidence? Is it your goodness? I had a really good week. I read my Bible really faithfully. I didn't sin this week. Therefore, God's going to be really uh, willing to hear my prayers? Or is it your language? You know, I know a lot of these and thous and big words and God's really impressed with flowery speech, right? None of that matters. We can approach God boldly because in Christ we know that God is our Father. Uh, my daughter, doesn't matter the time, place, situation, she, wherever my wife is, if my daughter wants to, she will just walk up and sit in her lap. Right? Even if my son, who's older, is in the lap, she'll pull him out and go and sit in the lap. Right? Why does she have that confidence that she can go and sit in my wife's lap? Right? It's not because of how good my daughter is or how cute she is. It's because she knows that that's her mom. She has the right to sit in her mom's lap. Right? How do we know that we have the right to go to God in prayer? Because in Christ, we know that God is our Father. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how sinful of a week you've had. We always have the right to go to God the Father. Why? Because in Christ, we have bold and confident access. And this is something that we need to go to prayer constantly, because if we want to succeed in this task of suffering for Christ and building his church, we cannot do it alone. We must rely upon God in prayer. And so pray faithfully for church planters and other churches and for your elders as they seek to lead you in being faithful to this task. Pray for one another to be faithful in living out your calling together. Pray that you will be willing to endure suffering and hardship for the glory of God. Look at the last verse. Paul says, Do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is saying, My suffering for the gospel brings glory to you. You understand that? When we suffer for others, for the sake of the gospel, we bring them glory. Why was Paul in prison? Because he was preaching that salvation could be had for those Gentile believers. If you are a believer, 
Do you realize that people have suffered and made sacrifices so that you could come to know Jesus? How many people opened their homes up to you, cooked meals for you, spent hours praying for you, uh, answered all of your questions? Uh, Maybe it was your parents who clothed you and fed you and made all kinds of sacrifices, dragging you here and there, making sure that they took their time to graciously and patiently share the gospel with you. It doesn't matter how you came to know Christ. I guarantee you people suffered so that you may know the gospel. They sacrificed so that you may know the gospel. That benefits us. And as Paul is in prison, where does his thoughts go? Right? Think about all the thoughts that run through your head while you're suffering. Immediately when I suffer, I start thinking, well, you know, whose fault is this suffering? Start thinking, you know, if I would have done this differently, maybe I wouldn't have faced this suffering, or if that person wouldn't have done that. Right? We start, and then we blame each other. Right? Oh, I'm suffering because of that fellow, or this situation, or that. Why isn't someone doing something about my suffering? Why isn't someone coming to my aid? We, we become bitter. We turn inward. You know, if I'm suffering, how can I help somebody else? I must first right myself, get myself together, and then I can go minister to others. But in the midst of Paul's suffering, what does he do? He takes time to encourage and pray for these young Christians. The focus of Paul's life is not on himself. His focus is always on preaching the gospel and building the church for the glory of God. This is why Paul elsewhere says, I can rejoice always. I can be content in all circumstances. And so when you are suffering, do your thoughts turn inward? Woe is me. My life is so hard. How bad is my circumstances? Or do you turn toward the Lord? Right? Even in your suffering, you're called to be an ambassador for Christ. Think about Paul. You can put him in prison, but can you put the gospel in prison? It continues to work. How can you continue to serve the gospel when you suffer? Right? How can your suffering further the mission of the church? Is your suffering meaningful? Right? If your suffering isn't meaningful, maybe you need to ask yourself why. Right? Are you living for your own glory or for the glory of God? Right? If you're living for your own glory, then your suffering is never going to have any meaning. But if you're living for God's glory, your suffering is always purposeful. Right? The price of prison was worth it to Paul because it meant the salvation of the Ephesians and that God would be glorified through them. Prison could separate Paul from them, but prison cannot separate them from God. And so what do we make of all of this? Sum it up. By this, give your life to the church. Make your purpose God's purpose. God's purpose isn't your comfort. You're not on center stage of God's story. If you're living for your purpose and your own glory, remember this, a million years from now in eternity, students, nobody's going to care about your mark sheet. Nobody's going to care about your degrees and say, oh, which college do you study? How many degrees do you have? No one's going to care about how nice of a car you drove. No one's going to say, what's the square footage of your house or what area was it in? Nobody's going to say, how much money did you make over the course of your life? Nobody's going to care a thing about your titles, right? God's purpose is his glory in making his glory known. And God has given us, his people, the privilege and responsibility to join in his purpose. How foolish 
would it be to not take up this privilege and responsibility, right? Our God, we heard it this morning about how big and how powerful our God is, has called us to serve him. And we know that his purpose will come to pass. How foolish would it be to not join God in his purpose? Right? Kingdoms, empires, governments, dynasty from the day of Pentecost have come and gone. In your lifetime, how many untouchable companies have fallen? Right? You think back to all the big and famous brands, at least when I was a kid of the 80s and 90s, how many of them last? But the church endures forever. Well, until Jesus returns, until Jesus comes for his bride. And so the only way in this dispensation, in this time, that you can have an internal impact is investing in the church. Right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where is your treasure? How do you do this? Well, be committed to your local church. Be an active member. Build up the church through evangelism and discipling and recognizing, yes, that oftentimes this will mean sacrifice. Sacrifice of your time. Sacrifice of your resources. Having an open home is not a picnic, right? Having kids come in and eat all your food is not always fun. But you're doing it, why? Because you're trusting that in serving them, you're building them up. You're building up the church, right? Hospitality, helping others, time, right? Be willing to suffer as you live life in the family of God. Be willing to suffer as you go out into the world and share the gospel and preach reconciliation. If you're involved in a parachurch ministry, make sure that the aim of your ministry is not just to build up your ministry, but to build up the church. Right? Paul was willing to suffer for the sake of the church because he knew that God will accomplish his purpose through the church. Remember the Gordons that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. George and his wife were stopped in their mission to the island of Aramongo. At four years they were there. They gave them lives to loving the people, translating the Bible, and they were martyred. They gave their life to seeking to establish the church. George's younger brother James hears about it. He expresses a desire to go and continue his brother work. He knew that even his brother's death had not hindered God's plan to establish the gospel among the Aramongans. In 1864, James was able to go and fall in his brother's footsteps. And by 1870, he baptized 16 men. He trained these men to become leaders of the church. But in the strange providence of God, James too was martyred in 1872. His mother was blind, quite old and frail, and they were too afraid to tell his mother what had happened, right? After the first son, she, she had much grief, and now the second son is lost. And finally, they built up the courage to tell her, and when she heard of her second son's death, she quietly exclaimed, I wish that I had another boy to send that the heathen may receive salvation. 
Here is a mother who raised her children for the purpose of giving glory to God. And by 1900, 95% of the Ermongo people identified themselves as Christians. This is our task, to plant churches, to be devoted to the church because God is devoted to his church. That is his eternal plan and purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving sinners such as us. We are no better than Paul. We were once your enemies, living in rebellion to you. We cannot understand how you could save foolish, evil, wicked men and women like us. But in your grace, you have chosen us for the purpose of salvation and called us into the ministry of making your glory known. Father, we pray that you would help us to give our lives to your eternal plan and purpose, that we would be faithful and active in seeking to build up Christ's church for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' most holy and precious name.